Hello, nursing students. Thank you so much for tuning in to join us for our Nursing Career Club podcast. We're re very excited to welcome our Manager of Infection Prevention at West Penn Hospital, Nancy Dugan, um, to talk with us a little bit further about infection prevention and ways that we keep our staff and patients safe. Um, in addition, I'm joined with Autumn Oshi, our nursing career coach, um, and we invite you to join us in a conversation today. So hi, Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for asking me. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with the, the students, I really do. Absolutely, absolutely. We were wondering if you could give us a little bit of background into the life of Nancy, your education background, and kind of what got you to where you are today. Okay, sure. Um, I started out as a staff nurse and was a staff nurse for about 18 and a half years. And then I went to ICU for about five years. Then I was in case management for five years. And then for the last 15 years, I've been in infection prevention. And for those of you that are going into nursing, that's a perfect example of all of the opportunities that are available to nurses. Um, if you want to stay a staff nurse, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you want to move on to do other things, um, you have those opportunities. So it's just a, a real nice field to get into. Uh, as far as my educational info, I graduated with a bachelor's in nursing from the University of Pittsburgh. And I uh, got my uh, master's in nursing leadership from Chatham University. Awesome, awesome. For those who don't know, I'm actually a volleyball coach at Chatham University, so love to hear that. Um, and we've had so many wonderful nurses join our organizations from varied schools and backgrounds, so that's great to hear. Um, I, I have a varied background as well. Um, I worked, I started in a, a community hospital I've worked at a large level three trauma center hospital in the city. I've worked in an LTAC and now I'm at West Penn for the last six years, um, which is a level one trauma center. So with a burn unit and a level three NICU and a bone marrow transplant unit. So we have a lot of immunocompromised patients. So the only area that I've never worked in was a skilled nursing facility. I've never worked in a nursing home. Um, but yeah, so I've sort of seen large hospitals, small hospitals, and a large variety of patients in the last 43 years. I've been a nurse for 43 years, so long time. That's so awesome. We are so lucky to have you as a part of Allegheny Health Network. Thank um, you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think something that we all were wondering too, I know you mentioned, you know, eventually your career led you to infection prevention. Um, can you explain a little bit more what it is that you really do um, in your job day to day and what, who is infection prevention or what is? And you know, that seems like an easy question, but I have to tell you, there are some senior leadership people that don't even know what we really do um, because we do a lot. Um, a lot of people, I think, think that we just go around and make sure that you do your hand hygiene and that we just observe those kinds of things. I tried to sum it up as best as I could. Um, we identify infectious risks in the environment and we implement appropriate interventions. And sometimes that's easier said than done because when you think of my environment, it's the entire hospital. Um, it's the OR, it's the GI lab, it's the uh, CT scan area, it's the MRI area. 
it's um, the nursing units, it's just everywhere. And even some of the outpatient areas that we're responsible for. So that's my environment, it's the entire building. Um, we try to protect the patient and, and the healthcare worker from infection. We have to make sure that all the instruments and devices are sterilized or if they need high level disinfection, is that done appropriately? And we have to make sure that all the environmental surfaces are clean and they're disinfected appropriately. So, and that again, you know, you could clean it, but are you using the right product? And are you letting it on that surface for the amount of time that it needs to be on before it's disinfected appropriately? So some of these things involve a little bit more um, than just, you know, making sure that it's clean. And then the big thing that truly, it applies to every, preventing every infection, preventing the transmission of even COVID is standard precautions. And I know that everyone wants to see if there's a magic bullet that we can use to prevent us from not being safe, but there isn't. It's really basic stuff like washing your hands, doing it appropriately, wearing personal protective equipment or PPE the appropriate way, making sure that you put it on and take it off correctly, respiratory cough etiquette, you know, coughing in your sleeve and sneezing in your sleeve and throwing your tissues away in the appropriate uh, receptacle, safe injection practices so that you don't jab yourself with a needle and making sure that you handle potentially infectious material or equipment in a safe manner so that you don't get um, exposed to anything that you shouldn't be getting exposed to. So um, that pretty much can protect you. If you follow those basic things, that can protect you from everything. Absolutely. And I think something that we'd, we'd be curious about too. So a lot of nursing students, you know, have asked about the changes with COVID and you talked a little bit to that, you know, it, it's all deeply ingrained in infection prevention um, as it's always been. Um, can you explain a little bit more about why infection prevention is so important to nursing? And, you know, I can. Um, and not only is it important to nursing, like really and truly, if you would say to me, why is infection prevention important to nursing? We really could stop it at why is infection prevention important? Because what the answer that I'm going to give you is really would pertain to any discipline in the hospital. But it really is, infection prevention is at the heart of your practice to manage risk and be vigilant about that risk and help to keep everyone safe in the place that they're receiving care. And the place that they're receiving care could be a doctor's office, it could be a dialysis clinic, it could be um, the, an outpatient area, it could be getting a chest x-ray. So it doesn't matter what area they're in, um, you always have to anticipate that risk and be vigilant about it because really the best interest of the patient is the only interest to be considered. Um, and that's the motto that I have to go by because as an infection preventionist, I am a, a patient advocate and they're my number one responsibility to make sure that they're safe. I have to also make sure that the healthcare workers are safe, but my primary concern is the patient. Love followed, that. Yeah, followed by um, the employees. Love that. And so whenever we're talking about infection prevention and doing the daily care, you know, thinking about our students um, and doing their daily hand hygiene, what are some of the, the main 
topics that you would like to cover with our students? What would the, be the main things that you would want them to know? You mean for hand hygiene? Yes, yeah, I would say hand hygiene and basic protection, you know, practices for them as they're coming in for their clinicals and then going further into sure. their careers. Okay, so for, for hand hygiene, you know, and I know um, your nursing students and as you go through your career, you will hear this so many times that um, you'll get sick of it, but really and truly hand hygiene is the most important way to prevent the transmission of germs. It, it just is. It's so simple and basic, but it's washing your hands for 20 seconds is really the best way that you can prevent the transmission of bacteria and, and germs. Um, no matter where you get a job uh, after you're finished your education, um, the hand hygiene rules are pretty much the same that you'll be expected to wash your hands when you go into the room and when you come out. And when I do education for new hires, I always say if you can remember before and after. So before you touch something contaminated or potentially contaminated and after. Before you put on gloves and after you take them off. Between patient contacts, you should be washing your hands. Between procedures, before you eat and after you go to the bathroom. And I actually, you know, you might say, well, I can't believe you have to tell me that I have to wash my hands after I go to the bathroom. But believe it or not, there have been some video cameras that have been put in airport bathrooms. And in 2020, so this is this year, there were some interesting statistics in this one article that are kind of scary. Um, but they found out that if someone was present in the bathroom with you in a public restroom, that you had a 23% more chance of washing your hands because you saw that somebody was watching you. 88% of people admitted to washing their hands after using the bathroom, 88%. So that means that 12% didn't. 99% of people said that they've actually witnessed someone walking out of the bathroom not washing their hands. Oh boy, that's 85, so Yeah, 85% <laughs> of people said that hand hygiene is paramount after using public restrooms. So of course, 15% of people said, mm, maybe not. Yeah. And 72% said that hand hygiene prevents illness and disease. So room for education there. And this was in 2020. So this is, even with COVID being in the news 24 seven, and you can't even read anything else except that pretty much, there are still, people that don't realize that this is the best way to prevent illness and disease. I hope that makes them think twice whenever they're reaching for the door handle and they're going through and thinking, oh, I don't need to sanitize my hands and, and doing all that. I'm, I only just touch this. Hopefully this really makes right. people think. Um, it's so scary. I actually started educating my kids when, when they're seven and three. Mm -hmm. You need to use a paper towel to open the door. Some of those simple things that you mm -hmm. know, teach my children as they're going through because those are basic practices I know as a nurse going through my career. Exactly. Absolutely. And I think too, you know, working closely with nurses, I myself am not a nurse and I know a lot of our listeners may be in the early stages or just choosing to enter nursing school. Um, I know there's been a lot more conversation about PPE. Um, 
and what that is. Would you mind just doing a little bit of an explanation on what PPE is and what, how we use it? And um, I've heard a lot about it, but it's best to hear from you. <laughs> yeah, and, and your PPE or personal protective equipment, but you'll hear both um, terms. It's been around for a long time, and but with COVID, of course, you know, everybody knows about PPE now and they see the videos on TV and on social media. So they see people with um, the paper hoods on and the N95 respirators and the, the gowns and the gloves. Um, but those are the basic things that you need to protect yourself and not just from COVID. Um, that's how we protect ourselves from the flu. That's how we protect ourselves from tuberculosis, from all of the other multi-drug resistant organisms that are floating around the hospital. So it's a variety of barriers that you can either use alone or you use in combination to protect your mucous membranes, which for us is your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your airway, your skin, and your clothing from any contact with infectious agents. So you have gloves. If you're gonna to potentially touch something that could be contaminated, or if you actually, if you're working with anyone's blood or body fluid, uh, if you're touching their mucous membranes, like if you're giving them eye drops or um, putting some ointment in their mouth or on their lips or something, you're touching their mucous membrane of their mouth. Any non-intact skin that you'd come in contact with on the patient, any open areas, any contaminated equipment, or if you're starting an IV or anything like that, um, you'd have to wear gloves. The, some of the things I wanna remind you though is make sure that those gloves fit appropriately. Um, and in your um, study so far, if you've been in hospital yet, which you may not have had clinic, but if you do, there's nothing worse than having gloves on that are too small, that are too tight, because number one, they're too tight and they don't fit appropriately. But number two, because they are too tight, they could rip and tear because they don't fit. The other end of that is if they're too big. If you normally wear a medium and all you have available is a large, your hand is swimming in that glove. And if you're trying to do something where you need some manual dexterity with your gloves, you can't because the gloves don't fit properly. So make sure that they fit correctly. The gloves prevent you from becoming colonized with an organism that you can either transmit to a patient or it reduces your chance of transmitting your own organisms to somebody else. You know, we all have what we call endogenous flora on our bodies. We all have organisms on our bodies and some of them are, they live there. They live on our skin. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't. And when you're healthy, the good organisms take care of the bad ones. It's when you become unhealthy and sick that the, sometimes the bad organisms win out. So you don't want to transmit those organisms to someone in the hospital who's already sick and weakened and compromised. Masks and face shields, always been around for a long time, but now with COVID, um, everybody knows about the N95 respirators, the N100 respirators, the paper hoods that look like the, um, you know, the bioterrorism um, white suit with the big hood and the um, power pack on the waist that you see people wear on TV. We also have those in the hospital for people that are caring for people with COVID. We provide the N95s, the N100s, and also um, the nurses in our COVID unit units wear the paper hoods with the um, power pack around their waist. Those masks and or face shields protect you against blashes, again, to your mucous membranes, your eyes, your nose, your mouth. 
And anytime someone's having an aerosolized generating procedure, um, so if they're having a drug aerosol treatment, if they're getting a nebulizer treatment because of congestion in their lungs, if they're being intubated in ICU and they're gonna be hooked up to a ventilator, um, if they're in the operating room and they're getting intubated because they're gonna have a procedure and they have to be put to sleep, all of those things are aerosol generating procedures and they're an airborne risk. And so those people all have to be protected and make sure that they have um, the proper uh, respirators, the N95s or the N100s or the PAPRs before they do those procedures. And then gowns, they protect your skin and your clothing. Um, if you anticipate blood or body fluids are gonna get splashed, it'll protect your skin and clothing. You can use a gown even if isolation isn't required. That's what standard precautions are. Even if the person is not in isolation, if you think you're gonna get splashed, you can wear any of these things. You can wear a gown, a mask, or, glo or uh, gloves, even if, you, even if that patient's not in isolation. And with anything else, there's a proper way to put things on and a proper way to take them off. So we call it donning and doffing. And if you don't put the equipment on correctly, then it's not gonna help you. If you don't take it off correctly, you can contaminate yourself. Um, one of the, another story that is kind of interesting, it came out of, in the British Medical Journal, and it just came out like a few months ago. And it shows that personal protective equipment can be very effective when it's used correctly. Just like I talked about the cleaning products earlier in the introduction, if you don't use the cleaning product correctly, it's not gonna, it's not gonna work effectively. So what they did was there were 420 doctors and nurses that went to Wuhan, China. Of course, we know Wuhan, China was where um, COVID started and other parts of China, like the surrounding areas. And they were there for six to eight weeks to treat COVID patients. And they were all trained in how to appropriately put on the PPE, how to appropriately take it off. And they were given adequate supplies so that they didn't have to reuse anything. By the conclusion of that eight week stint in Wuhan, they tested all 420 of those doctors and nurses and no one acquired COVID during that time because they properly were protecting themselves and wearing the appropriate PPE for whatever um, task they were performing with those patients. So that's huge. That's awesome. So when we think about COVID and we think about the PPE and the things that we do in place, you know, we go over best practices and etiquette and things that we should remember to do, especially I think right now, one, we're in a global pandemic and now we're going into flu season. So can you give us some recommendation or, you know, some best practices that you would advise for our students, for our nurses and instructors, you know, coming through and taking care of our patients? When you're talking about flu season and just in general, because we are getting into the fall, people get more colds than they do in the summer months. Um, and obviously flu respiratory viruses um, are out there as well. And we actually have several patients in isolation at West Penn right now because they have one of the respiratory viruses. So they're in contact droplet precautions because of that. But when you're outside, and you, you, we see people do this all the time, but there's actual 
a name for it. It's called respiratory cough etiquette. And CDC actually even has signs that you can put in waiting room areas, uh, like in x-ray uh, departments and in doctor's offices, public areas like that, emergency room, waiting rooms and things, where they'll actually ask you to protect, practice respiratory cough etiquette. And all that really is is things that you see people do already. It's a combination of measures that are designed to just decrease the transmission of respiratory pathogens that are either transmitted either by droplet or airborne. And those are the only two ways that it's transported, either droplet or airborne. So when you sneeze, you either sneeze into a tissue or you sneeze into your sleeve. You cover your mouth with a tissue when you, when you cough or you cough into your sleeve. And we see people do that all the time. You dispose of those tissues in the appropriate receptacle. So make sure that there's a garbage can around where you can dispose of your tissues and wash your hands with alcohol hand sanitizer. And we've seen people do that all the time, but it's actually called respiratory cough etiquette. There's actually a name for it. So, and we will see um, more of that in, in the fall and winter just because of flu season and now COVID and with colds, the common cold. Absolutely. Um, and I, I was also curious too, um, we've heard a lot from students too, just making sure that we're practicing safety. Um, can you talk a little bit about safe injection practices? Yeah, because again, that's part of standard precautions. So for standard precautions, we already mentioned hand hygiene, we already talked about PPE. Um, and then for safe injection practices, you know, there's bloodborne pathogens. Bloodborne pathogens are any organism that's present in human blood that can cause disease. And OSHA, I think mostly everyone has heard of OSHA, um, they develop standards across the industry, and it's not just for healthcare. Um, construction companies have to use OSHA. Um, canning factories have to use OSHA. Like every single industry has to use OSHA standards. And they're standards that protect all workers that have any chance of any contact with bloodborne causing organisms. So if I'm a nurse in the, or if I'm a, a lab tech, I'm gonna be at a higher risk of getting a bloodborne pathogen injury than say someone who works in the billing office. Um, nurses have a higher risk than you know, someone else who works in another department where your risk of getting um, stuck with a needle might not be as high. And so these bloodborne pathogens, which the ones we concern ourselves with in the hospital is HIV, hepatitis C, hepatitis B, Ebola, and COVID as of today, um, October 8th at five o'clock in the afternoon is not labeled as a bloodborne pathogen at this time. Now down the road, they may deem that it is considered a bloodborne pathogen, but right now it has not um, received that label. So these are organisms, Hep B, Hep C, and HIV, and Ebola, that enter your body either because you prick yourself with a needle, you cut yourself with a sharps, like in the OR sometimes there's a scalpel and someone accidentally cuts themselves. Any break in your skin, splashes in your face, any form of sex, sharing used needles, and then sometimes babies are susceptible to HIV, hepatitis C, and hepatitis B just through the birthing process if the mother is positive for any of those. 
not all body fluids are considered um, fluids that can cause bloodborne pathogens. Feces, any nasal secretions, saliva, sweat, tears, urine and vomit are normally not considered body fluids that would fall under the category that can cause um, a bloodborne pathogen to enter into your bloodstream, except if any of those uh, fluids that I just mentioned contain visible blood. So if someone has a nosebleed, then absolutely. If someone got punched in the mouth and they're bleeding from their mouth and it's mixed with their saliva, then absolutely. And obviously if someone is coughing or if someone's vomiting up blood or they're bleeding blood through their stools and they have a GI bleed, then yes, then it can become a bloodborne pathogen risk. The, the good thing about that is your chances of getting bloodborne pathogens. So if you would get a needle stick after giving someone an injection, your chances of getting HIV is less than 1%. It's, it's really actually very low. For hepatitis C, it's a little bit higher. It's 1.8%, but again, not really that high when, when you consider the odds. Hepatitis B is a little bit of a different story, and that's why we developed in 1982, the hepatitis B vaccine came out for all healthcare workers. And whenever you do get hired at whatever facility you go on to work at, um, there's hepatitis B vaccines that are offered free of charge. It's mandatory that if your patient caring folks are working in an area of high risk, then you get offered the hepatitis B vaccine, which is a series of three vaccines over several month period of time. The reason for that is because your chances of getting hepatitis B from a needle stick go from 1.8 and less than 1% up to 6% and as high as 30% depending on how susceptible you are. So if you're someone who um, is immunocompromised for whatever reason, your chances could be as high as 30% of contracting hepatitis B. So that's why we have a vaccine for that. And of course, nothing for COVID. Ebola, there's nothing for Ebola. There's no vaccine for Ebola. I mentioned Ebola because in the Allegheny Health Network, Allegheny General Hospital, which is kind of the mothership of the Allegheny Health Network, they actually have a CDC certified Ebola unit over there. And everyone over there has been trained in Ebola. I actually had to go and be trained uh, for Ebola. And we had to learn all of how to properly don and doff and decontam decontamination and things like that. Um, we normally don't get Ebola patients here at West Penn. But I mentioned Ebola just because we could possibly get one in the system at, at some point. That's, That's great. Really yeah, I'll tell you, I was on an Ebola um, response team as well in one of the organizations I worked with. And definitely, um, there's a lot that goes into it. There's mm -hmm. a, lot that, a lot of training, a lot of practice. And especially if you're going to be the Ebola unit, there's a lot that goes into that. Yeah, I mean, the CDC, they actually had to send representatives from the CDC to Allegheny General um, to tour their unit. And of course, they were given funds, you know, federally funded grants to um, have a state-of-the-art Ebola unit, all negative pressure. And obviously, there'd be like dedicated staff that would work there. But I mean, the CDC actually had to come and... Uh, give them their blessing and give them their certification. 
And then the uh, Pennsylvania Department of Health had to go in as well and um, approve everything there and make it certified. So they actually had to get certified by two different organizations. Yeah, so whenever people think about what each hospital does and what goes into it, hopefully they understand that there's a lot more that goes into it than just these modules and trainings, that there's a lot that goes into that process. And the main focus is for our patients and for our staff. I think something too that Nancy alluded to was talking about transition or, you know, you talked about how you went and you had a special class specifically for Ebola. Um, what does um, our training process or our orientation process look like for infection prevention? If someone were to start with AHN as a new nurse, is there a segment that, that goes over all of these key things? Um, not in as much detail as I did now. Um, they do do a section on COVID um, and everything that the network is doing for that, just because it is the, the main topic that everyone wants to know about, obviously. Um, this, all of this that I'm talking about now <clears throat> is in the annual competencies that everyone has to take on the computer. So yes, when they would get hired, um, there would be, uh, I think it takes like three hours to do the whole competency, but there is a section on infection prevention and all of this is covered and it, it's covered because it's actually mandatory. Um, there like the bloodborne pathogen information is actually required by OSHA. We have to be able to show that we've taught you about safe injection practices and things like that. Um, and we have to make sure that we have work practice controls in place, um, engineering controls in place for um, decreasing your chances of getting bloodborne pathogens and things. And that's all in the education as well. And when I talk about work practice controls, I mean, do we provide you with soap? and alcohol hand sanitizer and hygiene products. Do we provide you with um, a hospital approved hand lotion for in the winter time when your hands get dry and you keep washing your hands plus it's cold outside? Do we have appropriate places for you to eat and drink? And I say appropriate because there are certain places that aren't appropriate for you to eat and drink. Um, do we have proper places to store your food as opposed to the patient's nourishments? and the medications and the specimens, the lab specimens, because obviously those four things can't be stored together. Number one, cause that's just gross. And number two, each one of those food, our food, the patient food, medications and lab specimens all have to be stored at different temperatures. Not so much our food and the patient foods, like a refrigerator is a refrigerator for food but medication and specimens all have to be stored at different temperatures and you can't be mixing like clean food with specimens and things like that. So they look for things like that. Um, and it's required that we teach you that. And then educational controls. Um, I mean, I'm sorry, engineering control. Sorry about that. Um, yes, we provide you with soap, but an alcohol hand sanitizers, but do we have the technology or the devices available in convenient places. You know, we don't want you to be walking halfway down the hallway to wash your hands. Do we have enough alcohol hand sanitizers? Are there enough hand washing sinks? Are there enough sharps containers that are available right at point of use so that you're not carrying uh, a needle halfway down to go to the dirty utility room to dispose of it? Um, do we provide you with needleless IV systems? 
do we have biohazard bags that have the biohazard uh, symbol on them to dispose of biohazard equipment and do we have containers for that? So any hospital that you work for in the future is going to have all of this. And then they'll also have an exposure process so that if you do get stuck um, with something with a needle or if you are exposed to a hazardous product, there's an exposure process in place um, to make sure that um, you get the appropriate care and, and that the appropriate people know about it. So as far to get back to your question, yes, we do have like an annual competency that's electronic. Um, we used to go through all of this um, in the orientation. Now it's mainly focused more on COVID and then they do this other, um, the, the other education is electronic. Well, it's, it's really good. I'm sure it's peace of mind too for the student to know that, you know, they will go through all of these things and we, we will take the time and have process and protocol to set them up to succeed um, and to ensure that all of these things are reiterated and taught um, and a part of your training and orientation process um, before, you know, being off on your own. It, you're never really on your own. Um, we're a team and, and we operate together. Um, and I know Autumn had alluded to this and we talked a little bit um, about it being flu season upcoming. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the flu vaccine um, and, and kind of a little bit more into um, what, what you would recommend there? Sure. Um, you know, because the flu has been around for so long and it's so common to get the flu, you get the flu and you get better, you're off work a couple days or you miss school a couple days and then you go back to work and, and everything's fine. And maybe you don't feel good for maybe five days and then you're okay. But really and truly, the, the flu influenza is really a very serious disease and it truly is not given enough respect. And I tell people that every year. People die from the flu and not just older people. You know, we always think of people over the age of 65 or even like in their 80s. Um, that those are the casualties of the flu. And that's not necessarily the case all the time. Um, babies actually die from the flu because when you think about it, the very, very young and the very, very old are those people in our population that have the least robust immune system. They're the age groups that can't fight off infection. So just to put it into perspective, in 2019-2020 flu season, which was last year, across the country, 188 babies died from the flu. The year before that, 188 babies died from the flu. And the year before that, 110. So these were normal healthy babies that either got the flu from someone and did not survive. So it really is a very serious disease and we just don't treat it with enough respect. Um, I can't encourage you enough to get the flu shot. Um, you cannot get the flu from the flu shot. I have to tell people that all the time. And the reason why you can't is because it's a dead virus. It's dead. It's, it's called attenuated. Attenuated means it's not a live virus. There are some vaccines that are live viruses. The flu is not one of them. Unless you get the nasal mist, which we only advise for kids and for healthy people 
um, that don't have asthma or any other respiratory um, illnesses, bronchitis, anything like that, prone to, prone to bronchitis or anything, any type of chronic lung disease or anything, then we can give the nasal mist. That is a live vaccine, and that's why we don't give it in the hospital because we're around people that are immunocompromised and we can't be having healthcare workers with a live vaccine or with a live virus in their noses taking care of compromised patients. Um, up until last year, I should say last year was the first year that Allegheny Health Network actually required masks for folks that did not get the flu vaccine. Of course, this year, that's kind of a moot point because with COVID, masks are required as soon as you enter the building. So everybody wears masks anyway, so we don't have to um, enforce that this year. Um, as of this year, flu vaccines are not mandatory for employment in the Allegheny Health Network. I can't say that that's going to be the same thing for next year, but it is for this year. There are numerous hospital systems that already require, re require it as um, being required for employment. Um, not so much now. So our flu clinic is going on right now. It usually runs from October 1st when flu season starts and usually through the middle of November. That doesn't mean that you can't get a flu shot after the middle of November. Uh, it just means you have to go to employee health and we don't have the flu clinic. Um, flu season based on CDC guidance starts October 1st and ends March 31st. The Allegheny County Health Department and all the other, uh, Westmoreland County Health Department, all the other health departments usually get, follow that same protocol or that same time frame, unless we have an exceptionally heavy flu season. If we have a really bad flu season, if the CDC extends that deadline past March 31st, then normally the county health departments follow suit and do the same thing. Based on some past years, we've actually had flu season go on until the middle of May. It depends on how bad, how bad it is. This year, we don't know what the flu season's going to be like. You know, with social distancing, with masking, we may actually have a very mild flu season. We don't know. And even infectious disease experts don't know yet. We have to just wait and see what happens. But with some of the COVID protocols put in place, um, it may not be as, as heavy a flu season as in past years. We'll have to see. And we don't know how effective the vaccine's going to be. Yeah, that's interesting how you touch on the point. You know, a lot of things we don't know, um, but something that we do know is we've been prepared and equipped to respond um, as things do change. Um, you know, COVID hit, a lot had changed, um, but I'm really proud of our organization and many organizations across the country and their, their ability to respond um, and to quickly, you know, adapt to make sure that we're keeping our communities safe. Um, but I wanted to ask, Nancy, this is, I'm gonna throw this out there. I, I'm curious, we have nursing students on, on the line and listening in. What would be, I know you've had a, a great career so far of just wonderful experiences. What would you say would be your best piece of advice for a nursing student listening in? It could have to do with infection prevention or not, but what would, you, what would be a, a nugget of advice you'd give them? This really doesn't even, it includes infection prevention, but it includes just everything that involves taking care of the patient, 
and and being an employee, no matter where you work or no matter what your job career takes you, where, where your job career takes you, do the right thing. If it's your policy, follow the policy. If it's the right thing to do for the patient and for yourself, do it. Follow your gut. If something doesn't sound right, if it doesn't look right, if it doesn't feel right, it probably isn't. And no one is going to fault you for questioning, you know, gee, this order doesn't look right. This, what, what that person told me to do doesn't sound right. That's not what I was taught to do. If your gut is telling you it's not right, question it because it probably isn't. And someone may have given you misinformation, not on purpose. Um, maybe they don't know the correct information and they don't realize that they don't know it. So do the right thing. That's great advice. That's probably, yeah. It, it, you know, if you follow the policies of your particular hospital, it will never get you into trouble. That is great, great advice. Nancy, we want to thank you greatly. Thank you so much for being here with us and chatting with us a little bit more about how to keep ourselves safe, how to keep our patients safe, um, and how to, to navigate these times. But also just thank you so much for your honesty and your ability to just really connect. We appreciate that. And we love that you're a, a great leader in our organization. So thank yes, you so much. Thank you so much, Nancy. I love, I love your input on infection prevention. And I think you bring such a human aspect to it and make it fun. So I really appreciate that. I appreciate doing this. You know, there are so many aspects to infection prevention. And like I told you, I can't list them all, everything that we get involved with. Um, but, you know, one of the things, one small piece of what we do is educate. And it's actually not a small piece. It's, it's a big part of what we do, really. Um, I love to educate. And I love to talk to the staff. I love to talk to new nurses and see what they're thinking and, you know, why they decided to do this. Because sometimes I question that every day. Why did I decide to do this? But um, there's a lot of rewards out of it as well. So um, I appreciate it. Thank you for asking me to do this. I enjoyed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we look forward to staying connected with all of the nursing students in our continuous. Um, we'll be adding continuous episodes of our podcast. Um, but thank you so much for joining us today. And we'll see you on the next episode.